Good morning, church family. Both here and online, we're glad you're with us this morning. My name is Steve Johnson. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor of Discipleship and Global Outreach, and it's my privilege to bring the word to you this morning. And uh, it's very interesting that God oftentimes will orchestrate circumstances to maybe even begin to pray and prepare our hearts a little bit for, for his word. As you know, this uh, last week, we lost 13 servicemen in uh, Afghanistan, and 20 are still injured at uh, different stages of fighting for health and, and their life. And uh, I really believe that it's important for us to honor their sacrifice and to pray for their families. So would you pray with me? Father, we know that the fate of nations is in your hands. And yet, Father, our hearts were deeply saddened at the tragic deaths of those men who put their lives on the line for U.S. citizens, for Afghan citizens, for international citizens. And Lord, we pray this morning for their families. We pray for their moms and dads and sisters and sons and daughters and ask, Father, that you would comfort them, that they might sense the loving arms of the Father wrapped around them, that they might find in the midst of all of this the peace of Jesus Christ, which passes all understanding. And that, Father, you would somehow give them strength through your Holy Spirit that might cause them to put their trust in you, but that you would give them strength to put one foot in front of the next. And, Father, I pray that in whatever way possible, could you possibly help touch their hearts with our respect, with our honor, and with our gratitude for what their fathers, sons, brothers, sisters have done in the name of freedom. Lord, do that, we pray in Jesus' most precious name and God's people said, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them, please, to Acts 23 and Acts 24. We are going to do something crazy this morning, scream through two chapters, two very full chapters in, in, the, in the book of Acts. And as we come to Acts chapter 23, it seems that the Apostle Paul, every time he goes about sharing the gospel, he's causing a riot. He went to the, he went to the temple courts and he started sharing the gospel, started a riot. He stood before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, he started a riot. And, and it seems that um, today, as we look in chapters 23 and 24, Paul's going to start another riot. And then they're going to have a plot to kill him. And then he's going to get whooshed away and sent to, a, to the Roman governor, and he's going to end up in court. And then he's going to start a two-year stint in, in protective custody, prison, so to speak. And yet through all of this, there's a thread, a really important thread that we won't want to miss. We're not going to look at, at every verse, and you're all going, thank you, Jesus. Um, so we're going to kind of move through the different, the different sections. So we come to, to, to verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 1. And just before that, if you remember, in chapter 2, Paul had started a riot um, among the Jews. And uh, there was this riot going on in the streets. And the Roman centurions grabbed Paul, thinking that he had done something wrong. He obviously broke the law. So they took him to the barracks, to the fortress. There in Jerusalem, and they had attached him to some sort of, I don't know whether it was a stretcher or whatever it was, but they were getting ready to whip him. 
And Paul simply asks the question, hey, wait a minute, can you guys do this to a Roman citizen? Of course, the answer to that question is no. They, couldn't, they, they hadn't, hadn't uh, charged him with anything. He hadn't been convicted. So they had no right to whip him. And when Paul, you know, lets them know that, hey, I'm a citizen of Rome, um, even though he, you know, he looked Jewish and he was very familiar with Jewish customs, they decided, you know what, we've got to do something about this, so we better take him back before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, to, uh, to find out what's really going on here. And that's where we pick up the passage in uh, chapter 23, verse 1. Paul stands before the council, and uh, even before the charges are levered at him, Paul has something to say to the, the Sanhedrin, to, the, to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who make up the Sanhedrin. And he says in verse 1, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this moment. In other words, Paul is, is, is setting the stage by saying, You know what? No matter what you have to say, I have a clear conscience. Now, you think about that, and you go, that's really strange for a guy like Paul. What was Paul just doing months before? He was killing Jews. He was, he was persecuting them. And yet, somehow, between then and now, he can say he has a clean conscience. Where did he find it? He found it in the forgiveness of God. Paul recognized his sin on that road to Damascus. He asked and received God's forgiveness. And now he can live his life and say what he needs to say with a clean conscience. I only bring that up because I'm sure there may be somebody in here this morning who's dealing with a heavy conscience. And if you're dealing with a heavy conscience this morning, let me encourage you to do the simple right thing. Admit you're wrong, confess it to God, and ask for his forgiveness. He will fill you with that forgiveness and give you a clean conscience. Well, obviously his response was not received very well by the high priest, the head of the Sanhedrin, Ananias, in verse 2. It says, And the high priest commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Then those who stood by, and they were probably the ones that struck him, said, would you revile, disrespect God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Ananias was absolutely offended that Paul would make that comment about having a, a clean conscience in light of the serious crimes of inciting riots and being anti-Jewish that, that he was. So he had Paul punched in the mouth. And what, what's Paul's response? Well, Paul's a little upset because Jewish law says you can't strike, you can't do anything until a person has been proven guilty and condemned. And Ananias is jumping the gun. So Paul says, you're striking me? Tell you what, you got it coming, you whitewashed wall. Well, what is that? Well, a whitewashed wall basically refers to the wall, the outer wall of a cave where they buried someone. And basically what he was saying is, you may look pretty and white on the outside, but inside there's nothing but dead bones, you stupid hypocrite. Well, he wouldn't say stupid, but hypocrite. 
He's accusing him of, of, of being a hypocrite. And, and then he asked Ananias the question, why are you striking me? I haven't broken any laws. Well, those who hit him obviously don't like the way that Paul's talking to Ananias, and they say, who are you to disrespect the high priest? Now, some people think that Paul didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. I think Paul did know that, personally, I'm standing here, Bible's here. I, I think Ananias did know, or Paul did know that Ananias was the high priest. And he was try, trying to make a point. And so he quotes Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, to say, look, I am in subjection to God's will. And I am subject to the Old Testament law, the true authority. But I'm not going to listen to your authority because you have none before God in my eyes. I, I believe that's what Paul's saying. And then to, to somehow, I think Paul gets an, an idea in his head and he decides he's going to deflect the issue. So we find in verse 6 this, if you look at it. He says, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of, a, of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul's gonna derail the conversation. They're charging him with crimes, and now Paul brings up the hope of the resurrection of the dead. The issue of the hope of the resurrection of the dead was fundamental in, in his sharing of the gospel in his case. You see, the people of Israel, their deliverance depended upon the Messiah coming back from the dead. And by raising the controversy here, he's splitting the Sanhedrin right down the middle because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. But the other half of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, did not. So guess what ensues? A theological debate in the council chamber between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and Paul's case gets almost completely forgotten. <laughs> well, as the commotion builds... Um, and, and, and the purpose of the meeting is derailed, uh, the Roman official says, this is going nowhere. So let's get Paul out of here because he might get hurt in the midst of all of this. So the, the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, takes Paul into protective, protective custody in the barracks where they were going to whip him just a little bit of point, a little bit before. And at that point, I'm sure that Paul was undoubtedly wondering, how in the world am I going to get out of this mess? How in the world is God going to deliver me? And I'm sure it's a difficult time because nothing's settled. And I believe that if we were in Paul's position like Paul, I'd probably want a word of encouragement. And in verse 11 of chapter 23, that word comes. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul's in Jerusalem. His life is in danger. And yet God shows up in the middle of the night and says, Paul, don't worry. You have to testify in Rome. So Paul probably had some sort of encouragement that his life wasn't going to be over the next day. But I'm sure he wondered how in the world he would end up in Rome. Well, he's just about to find out Verse 12 of 23, when it was day, probably the next day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink till they had killed Paul. 
after being with the Jewish and in the midst of the Jewish council, now those people are so angry, they want to kill him. And they are so angry, they're saying, we're not going to touch food or drink until that Paul is dead. And so they, they hatch a plot. They want to go and ask the Roman centurions to return Paul to the temple, to the Sanhedrin, to the council. And there was about four or five blocks, according to what we can find in the maps, between the fortress where Paul was being uh, kept and the temple. And in that distance between those two, the Jews had plotted to send out the Sicarii. You've probably heard the term Sicario in reference to the Mexican cartels. Well, the Sicarii were very much like that. The Sicarii were trained assassins. They were people that the Jews hired and trained to wipe out anybody who would be an enemy of the Jewish people. Unfortunately, by the time we get to Acts chapter 23, these trained assassins had denigrated into being nothing more than killers for hire. So Ananias and the Jewish leaders wanted to hire these guys and make sure that Paul didn't make it from the barracks to the temple. Well, if you read on in chapter 23, um, from 12 to, 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 to verse 22, we discover that one of members of Paul's own family, his nephew, hears about the plot. And Paul's nephew goes to the Roman centurion and, and says, hey, this is going to happen. Centurion goes to Lysias and says, hey, they're going to kill this guy. And so Lysias figures that he's got to do something about it. And so in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 23, we read this. Then he, that is Lysias, called the two of his centurions and said, get ready, grab the number here, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which is 9 p.m. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. The tribune was absolutely convinced at this point that if he kept Paul in Jerusalem, Paul would certainly die. And as long as Paul was still in Jerusalem, there was also a danger of rioting. So he puts together this massive group of, of soldiers, 470 maybe, as many as that. They put Paul on a horse, and at 9 o'clock at night, they ride him out of Jerusalem about 40 miles northwest to Caesarea. And they go about 20, get about 28 miles as they get through the foothills, and they come to the flatland that, that, that's about 12 miles outside of Caesarea, and they decide it was time for the foot soldiers to go home, so they turn around and go back to the barracks. But the horses, the cavalry, go on with Paul all the way to Caesarea, and he ends up in the protective custody of Felix, the governor of, of that, that particular area. Now we come to chapter 24, verse 1. Paul's in protective custody. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Paul's now going to be hauled into court. They are so angry that Ananias and the Jewish mob from Jerusalem make the 40-mile journey. And they bring along with them a hired prosecuting attorney, the best of the best, in order to present their case. So the governor, Felix, brings Paul before his accusers, and he's going to listen to the charges. And here are the charges. Now, you need to know something about Felix. 
Uh, for those of us that are over 50, you probably, I say the name Felix, and you probably think of Felix the cat, and he's, you know, cool guy, right? Felix was anything but cool. Felix kept the peace in that part of, of the Roman Empire, but he did it through tyranny, through fear, through killing people. And so Felix wasn't a nice guy, really. And he bought his, his governorship. And so this, this, uh, this particular uh, prosecuting attorney starts in, in, in verse 2 and, and says, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for your nation. There is so much hooey in that verse, it's incredible. The reason why he's talking about Felix bringing peace, even though that peace came through tyranny, is he's going to accuse Paul of breaking the peace. And so... Here are the three charges. Number one, verse five, he was a pest and a troublemaker through the Roman Empire. He stirred up Jews and caused a riot wherever he went. Second, Tertullus pictured Paul as the leader of a cult outside of the Jewish nation. He was the leader of the Nazarenes. Now, the Roman Empire tolerated Judaism, but the cult of the Nazarenes was something different. It wasn't a part of of Judaism as far as the Jews were concerned. And therefore, Tertullus says, this is anti-Rome as well. And then thirdly, Tertullus claims Paul desecrated the temple. When, if you remember a couple chapters back, Paul brought an offering from, from, uh, from, uh, to the Jews in Jerusalem. And he, he brought an offering. He goes into the temple and he worships. He makes sacrifice. And then he brings an offering to the poor Jews in Jerusalem. He had a Gentile with him. And because he brought that Gentile into the inner courts, Tertullus says, see, this guy's desecrating the temple by putting an unclean individual in the temple. Well, Paul responds to the first charge. I've only been in Jerusalem 12 days. How can I be causing riots? To the second charge, all of my beliefs harmonize with the law and the prophets, the Old Testament and the law. You can't possibly accuse me of heresy or being the leader of a cult. And in response to the third charge, Paul replies that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship and to bring an offering in verse 11. 24. And then he points out, you know what, guys? My accusers aren't here. They're not present today. And they have absolutely no substantial charge against me. Therefore, I cannot be found guilty of anything. Their problem was they were fighting over the issue of the resurrection. And they probably continue to do that. But notice what Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 24. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. See the book in 23.1, 24.16? In all of this, I've, I've striven to keep a clear conscience before both God and both man, and you have absolutely nothing upon which you can charge me. Well, Felix is in a quandary because now Felix is forced with trying to figure out how to somehow make a decision over a theological issue of which he knew some but not a lot. 
And it says in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 24 that Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that is, Jesus, he put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, Paul, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. <laughs> Felix sought to, to preserve the peace by simply delaying the case. He put the case on the table, and he put Paul in protective custody and said, give him a little freedom, let his friends come and visit him, but don't let him get, don't let him too far. And the text goes on to say, in verse 24, that after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Paul's in this protective custody. The case hasn't been decided. His fate is still up in the air. And Felix calls for Paul to have a conversation with him and his very young trophy wife. She, they got married when she was 16. He was in his late 30s. And uh, they, have, they have a conversation. In fact, they have several conversations. And can you imagine this Roman governor having ongoing conversations with the most articulate spokesman for Jesus Christ in the first century? I'd love to be a part of those conversations. I would have just loved to hear what Paul had to say. But we do know this. Felix was looking for a bribe. Jesus was looking to make sure that Felix understood what the gospel was about. Self-control, sin, righteousness, and judgment. The three things that Jesus himself said while he was on his earth would be the things that the Spirit of God would use to hit men's and women's hearts and transform them and bring them to a personal saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was focusing on. Well, after the two years of uh, protective custody, after all of the conversations, Paul didn't pay the bribe. And you would think that, okay, Felix is done. Let's let him go. Two years, things have quieted down. Well, apparently, Felix didn't do his job very well, and he was relieved of his duties. He was knocked down in rank. And so a new governor came in, Portius Festus. And in order to make him happy and to keep the Jews happy, the scriptures say here, that Felix kept Paul in prison. So we come to the end of chapter 24, and it doesn't look too good for Paul in human terms. He's in prison, and he'll be there for two years. And he's absolutely powerless to do anything about his situation. I'm pretty confident this morning that none of your stories looks quite like this one. But it's a safe bet that we've all experienced the tension or the fear of not being in control of our lives, of not being where we want to be, of not having circumstances work out the way we want them to work out, completely unable to alter the slightest detail 
of tomorrow or, or next week. You know, a, a crystal moment for me in my life, there have been many, but the one crystallizing moment for me was um, 11 years ago when my daughter Stephanie, my youngest, turned 19. She came home from the regular checkup one day, and she says, Dad, the doctor told me I have the C word, cancer. She had cancer, thyroid cancer. And, uh, you know, I knew in the back of my mind, God's in control. I've been a pastor for enough years. God's in control. God's in control. God's in control. Thyroid cancer isn't the worst. There's worse cancer than thyroid cancer. But I still had those, that rush come over me of being completely and totally powerless. I wanted to fix her right away. I wanted to heal her right away. I wanted Jesus to heal her right away. And we lived, we, we've been living with that for 11 years. Um, they took out her thyroid. Um, a couple of years later, she went back, and they found a couple of calcified nodes, so they took them out. And for the last seven years, every checkup has been absolutely clear, praise God. But it was that moment when I felt completely and totally powerless. That was a moment God wanted me to say, okay, I get it. You're in control. I'm not. And I know you have something awesome for my daughter's life and for my life through this. And I wish I could honestly say that's exactly what I said to him. When you lose the person that's closest to you or when your body breaks on you or, you know, when, when your mind betrays you in life, falls apart. It seems at those moments we either try to get control and try to try harder to fix our issue or we go to God and we start begging to somehow get him to deliver us out of our circumstances when in reality what God wants to do is he wants to step in and meet you in the midst of that circumstance. What did I just say? God doesn't necessarily want to take you out of the circumstance. He wants to meet you in the midst of of the circumstance. What's at work here? The thread that runs through these two chapters is something much deeper than the rescue of Paul. It's called providence. Now, the word providence doesn't appear in the Bible, but it's a very biblical term. It's all over. The biblical term means the universal sovereign rule of God. It means that God directs people, and circumstances to accomplish his purposes. And providence is at work in every single one of your lives this morning, whether you're online or you're here in person. One scholar puts it this way, this is our Father's world, and the affairs of men and nations in the final analysis are in his hands. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when we find ourselves powerless to control our circumstances, our heart, our mind, our relationships? Recognize that this is our Father's world. And the affairs of your life and my life are in the final analysis in God's hands. You know, God has never asked us to meet the stresses and pressures and pain of life and demands on our own terms by somehow exerting our own force, our own strength. Most of the time, all that produces is an anxious, angry response and existence in which we become increasingly hardened and oftentimes find it even more difficult 
to hear, listen, and follow the lead of the Lord. What comes out of our passage this morning is that God wants us to wait and rest in his providence. That's why Jesus came to stand by Paul in, in chapter 23, verse 11. Paul had the word that he would end up in Rome. But Jesus wanted to meet him in the midst of that ugly circumstance between the Sanhedrin and a conspiracy to murder him just to know that he was in charge. And you know what? Paul did that. He rested and he waited in God's providence. He got it. He got it so well that if you go home this afternoon or if you want to do it now and you open up to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39, you will find the absolute definitive statement on providence in Scripture. God's working everything according to his purpose, and it's going to end up for your good one way or another. And you know what? It's bathed in God's eternal love for you. What does it mean to wait and rest in his providence? Well, to wait is to trust what God said is in his word about your future. I know one thing. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, one day you're going to stand side by side with him, and you'll live with him forever. Until you get there, I'm not sure. Maybe that's our Rome. But I do know that's true because the word says it. He doesn't promise much in between other than he's going to work things out for my good and for, for, for his glory. It, it's like ours is to say what David says in Psalm 63 when he's praying and he's talking to himself. And he says, for God alone... To God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. Because my hope is from him. To rest is to refuse to wrestle. <laughs> to wrestle with God in, in your circumstances, the ones that you can't control. When you wrestle, you can't think clearly. When you wrestle, you spend, up, you spend more time talking and less time praying. When you wrestle with God, you panic, and you don't trust. When you wrestle, you only think about yourself, your way, your rights, your plan, your well-being. And unfortunately, most of the time when we wrestle, we struggle against our circumstances, and we make things even worse, and our, cho our choices cause even more problems for us than they solve. When you start to see that happening, it's time to stop and rest and let God take control of your future, as difficult as that is. You know, one of the oldest sayings in, from the early church, the ancient church, summarizes the essence of God's providence, and it is this, the title of the message this morning, Deus pro nobis, which means God for us. That's what providence is all about. God is for you. He is about being for his people. And Paul, when he gives that definitive statement in Romans chapter 8 about providence, listen to what he says. What then shall we say to the things that are against us? Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? And who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can an angry, Jew angry Jewish mob? Can the Sicarii? Can Felix the governor? Can cancer? Can COVID? Can the loss of a job, can an unforeseen illness, 
or a tragedy separate you from the love of God? Can a broken relationship with your spouse or your child separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ? The answer is absolutely clear. No. Never. Not at all. Yours is not to control. When timing and circumstances don't make sense to you, when you're struggling with what's going on in your life, look to the cross, to Jesus. See God's incredible love for you. Then wait in and rest on God's incredible providence. God is at work to bring out the best for you and for me. And I believe that with all my heart. Simply wait in and rest on the providence of God. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, incredibly blessed to have a heavenly father that loves us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross to provide us with forgiveness and a clear conscience. And not only that, Father, we have, a, we have someone like you who every instant of every day, whether we're awake or asleep, your hand is at work for us to accomplish your purpose and hopefully bring us about to being the people that you want us to be. May we take the message that we see in chapters 23 and 24 this morning. Take it home. Reflect against our circumstances, our tensions, our fears, our struggles, our illnesses, our tragedies, our loss, whatever it is, Father. And we may take, may we take all of that and wait for you to respond and rest in your incredibly providential love in the midst. Help us to meet you in all of that not run away from you. I pray in Jesus' name. God's people said with me, amen.